This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our finance review series. So we hope that you all have been liking our finance episodes and uh, we're going to continue making them because uh, I mean, you guys have liked them. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk a little bit about student loans. To join us, we have Andrew Paulson. A little bit more about Andrew. Andrew is the lead and co-founder of StudentLoanAdvice.com. He has a master's degree in accounting and a passion for business and finance. He is a certified student loan professional. Andrew has also teamed up with the White Coat Investor to create StudentLoanAdvice.com because he has a passion for helping people find solutions to complex financial problems. He has also had the pleasure of advising doctors and other healthcare professionals across the country on how to best manage their student loan debt. He personally knows the challenges of student loan debt, and he has helped his wife actually pay off her nursing school debt. Andrew understands that student loan debt can be overwhelming, but he also knows that it is possible to create a solid, actual plan to pay it off. And so today we talk a lot again around student loans. So we talk about should you invest or pay down your student loans? How do you pick repayment plans, private refinancing, some common pitfalls and more. Uh, so without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episodes. And if anything, click the link in the description if you want to learn a little bit more about Andrew Paulson and student loans. So let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Andrew, uh, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Happy to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Wendell. Looking forward to it. And like we were talking before, this is kind of the newer segment that we're doing, a newer finance segment, because a lot of us never learn any of this stuff in school. Today, we'll talk a little bit about student loans, which I can say I've treated with gross neglect. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I know many of my, my counterparts have also just done the same and hit the deferment button. But hopefully we'll get talk a little bit more about it. And it, kind of just starting off, what got you into this whole kind of the loan atmosphere and finance? Yeah. So when I graduated school, so I met my wife and she's a nurse and she had some pretty significant student loans when, when she got done with school. And that was kind of my first foray into student loans, trying to figure out how do we deal with these and it's pretty unique, but, you know, for healthcare professionals in the way that you handle them. And there was a bunch of different repayment programs. There was loan forgiveness options. And it was kind of overwhelming trying to figure out what to end up doing. And so that was kind of my first experience with with student loans, you know, on, on a personal basis on what to do. And then my career, I worked in the investment industry for a couple of years. And then 
I had an opportunity to start an organization in conjunction with a large financial platform that's called the White Coat Investor. That's a large physician finance platform that has all sorts of resources to help doctors, you know, manage their money well across all different verticals. And kind of the perfect storm of me with a background in finance, in advising, and having personal experience with student loans. And there was just a very big need for so many docs, so many healthcare professionals out there that that have this mortgage that they had to take out for school. I was really kind of plugged into that space to decided to go into advising and helping people out and really kind of coaching them through the process to get out of debt. Yeah. And I like the way you worded it, taking out a mortgage, because that's, that's really what it is. It's like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars that a lot of people are in debt. But in reading, I think now that you've, as your firm has kind of consulted on over like 250 million or so of just student debt, like you've kind of helped manage a good amount, which is awesome, which, you know, which is great. And, and you're helping a lot of people out. So I guess in your experience, what type of loans do you, most people have? Are you seeing mostly private loans that you're working with with your clients and mostly federal loans and kind of, I guess, any other big categories of loans, just giving everybody just a, some basic background? Yeah. So I would say if you're just trying to take an idea of what kind of loans are you borrowing for medical school? So you have two types of loans. Typically, you have federal that are issued by the federal government and you have private loans that are issued by some private lender out there. Maybe it's Laurel Road or it's SoFi or it's Credible. Or, you know, there's a bunch of different private lenders out there. Most of you listening, you're going to have the majority of federal student loans. And if you're still borrowing, I would encourage you to borrow federal student loans because these type of loans have a lot of protections that a, a variety of repayment options, forgiveness options, death and disability discharge. Frankly, they just have a little bit more flexibility than private student loans do. And I think that private student loans do make sense for some people, but they usually are kind of on the end when you're done borrowing. So you're done with medical school and now, and maybe even you're done with residency and you're working as an attending physician and you're trying to, to pay down your loan. What we see commonly is that at that point in time, people will do what's called a private refinance where they convert their federal loans into private loans to be able to pay them off. But maybe we'll cover that a little bit later on. Yes. But when you're in the borrowing stage, I would really encourage you to borrow federally early on. Another point there is that federal loans typically have fixed interest rates, whereas sometimes private student loans have variable interest rates. And so what that means is that when you borrow a fixed interest rate, say you borrow today at 6% for you know this upcoming semester, that loan interest rate will stay fixed. Whereas a variable as interest rates go up, and they went up a whole lot last year. So I had clients that had private student loans that were perhaps starting at 3% at, say, the end of 2021 or early 2022. And today that rate is 7% because interest rates went up significantly. And so these variable loans have this ability to fluctuate, which could be helpful 
and which could also hurt your potential. Okay. And the other thing I would say is those of you that are going to medical school, you're probably going to have a majority of federal student loans. And the reason why is because there is no cap on how much you can borrow. You can borrow up to the cost of attendance for medical school. And I see some docs out there borrowing $100,000 a year, you know, for, yeah. for medical school. Whereas Private student loans are more commonly used in undergrad if you don't have it because there's caps on how much you borrow in undergrad. And then I see them more commonly after you're done with school and training if you're just trying to pay your loans down aggressively. Okay. I assume when it comes to, I guess, the repayment stage, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's subsidized versus unsubsidized loans. There's not one, I guess, big advantage to the other one when you're getting it, you know, guys kind of from a long-term perspective. Yeah, good question. And that's a point that that I didn't touch on is federal loans have what's called subsidized and unsubsidized loans. And for those of you that have gone to medical school 2012 and later, they only offer unsubsidized student loans. So what that means is that the interest typically starts to grow or accrue right after you borrow yeah. So first year when you're borrowing in, in medical school, that loan will start growing, whatever the interest rate is daily. It doesn't compound daily, but it does start growing. Whereas subsidized, they don't grow while you're in school. But you ask a question, does that change kind of the way you pay down your loans over the long term? Probably not. Okay. I, I don't think that, because once you get done with school, the unsubsidized loans start growing just like a subsidized loan would. So they would both be growing. So then kind of the objective is, okay, how do I address this? How do I tackle this? But it doesn't change. You know, you don't treat the subsidized differently really from the unsubsidized when you've gone from in school to out of school and you're starting to pay down your loan. Okay. That makes sense. And one of the other questions I had, is, you know, a lot of us, we come into, for example, residency like me, and we're wondering if we should repay these or defer these. And we're like, well, you know, I'm not making that much now. Let me just go ahead and defer, defer, defer until I can't defer anymore and then pay them off when it's time. Is there any advantage or disadvantage to deferring loan repayments? Or I guess what have you seen from the clients that you dealt with? Yeah. So if there is one takeaway that I definitely want your audience to have, please don't defer your loans when you're in residence. Okay. Really? That's all I've done. (laughs) Please don't do that. So usually in the way you defer your loans in residency is you typically enter what's called forbearance. Okay. I know that it is tough because they don't pay you much as a resident. And they don't pay you much as a fellow, okay? And things can be really, really high. So instead of entering forbearance or you know deferring payments or putting them off while you're in training, look into what's called income-driven repayment. And the reason why is because number one, income-driven repayment is based on what you are making and what your household size is. So if you made $60,000 as a resident or you made $70,000 as, you know, as a resident, your payments would be about 10% of what you make on a monthly basis, which is probably about 300 bucks a month, okay? So that's the first thing because most people they're like, "Oh, I owe $350,000. That's going to be a monthly payment of 4 grand." 
That's right. bigger than my take-home pay right now. I can't do that, you know? So, but look into income-driven repayment because the first reason why is the payments are probably more affordable than you think, okay? And the second point there is if you're interested in a loan forgiveness program, the clock doesn't start, click, you know, it doesn't start until you enroll into a repayment program. And they usually want you to be on one of these income-driven plans. So what forbearance or what deferring payments does is your loans will grow and you're also not going to be getting credit for any of the loan forgiveness programs. So just make sure you get started and you get enrolled into a repayment program and they're probably a lot more affordable than you think. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think I, I was realizing around my third year residency. I was like, well, you know, at this point I haven't you know made any payments on the public service loan forgiveness. And and I know that you have to start early, but since we're actually on that, can we go ahead and kind of discuss this like public service loan forgiveness? So there's many ways that you can go, I guess, about you know, managing your your debt. One is just paying it all back. One is kind of these forgiveness programs. Um, how does this program work? And then just like you said, you need to be making payments for you know up to 10 years before this gets forgiven or how does this work? Yeah. So just starting with the nuts and bolts of a public service loan forgiveness. So this is a federal loan forgiveness program that has been around since 2007. And the first borrowers that were eligible for this program was 10 years after that, about 2017. This program was created as a way to help or to incentivize borrowers to go into public service careers. You know, it's teachers, it's doctors, it's nurses, it's people that are working at nonprofits in 501c3s. And so it was just, you know, essentially created that way to help borrowers get out of debt. What does it do? So, so here's the four rules. The first rule is you have to make 120 monthly payments. So, and these are cumulative, not consecutive. You need to be enrolled into a qualifying repayment program. Typically, an income-driven plan we had talked about where payments are based on your income. Thirdly, you have to be working at a full-time at a qualifying employer. So that's a nonprofit or a 501c3. Okay. And you have to be directly employed or you have to be paid by them. For those of you that are in residency, there is a very, very high likelihood that you're affiliated right now with a big academic institution. That's probably a 501c3. So you're probably at an employer that qualifies for this, okay? And then you do have to have the right kind of federal loans. And effectively, you have to have direct loans. Some of you out there might have an older type of federal loans that are called family federal education loans or FFEL, but there, you know, you can you can fix that through through a consolidation. So those are the four rules: 120 payments in a qualifying repayment program, working at a at a qualifying employer full time, and also having direct loans. That's the program. Why do people even do this, right? And the reason why is after you make these payments for a decade. Whatever your loan balance is, it is discharged tax-free. So, you know, an example I would use is that let's say that I am, you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I'm going to do, I don't know, five years of training. So for those first five years that I need to make payments on this 10-year plan, 
my payments are going to be very, very low. Okay. So that means that when I exit training, I'm already halfway done with the public service loan forgiveness program. And maybe over that time, I've only been paying like 300 bucks a month. So maybe I end up paying over my my first five years about $15,000 on my student loans. And so I haven't really paid a whole lot. But then there's going to be a big jump in income when I become an attending physician. But let's just say that I borrowed $300,000 on my student loans. And over 10 years, I end up paying $200,000. You're going to have an outstanding balance still after a decade. And whatever that balance is, that goes away tax-free. So whether you have $50,000 or you have $800,000 in student loan, that balance goes away. Kind of initially a way to assess, does this make sense for you? Because I think a lot of, of orthopedic surgeons you're probably going to be making more than you owe when you become an attending physician. Really, the kind of the way the way to look at this is I try to take it from a debt to income perspective when you're vetting to see if it makes sense for you. If you owe fifty thousand dollars and you're going to be making five hundred thousand dollars plus as an attending physician, that's probably not somebody that should do this. If you owe two hundred and fifty. $300,000, $400,000 in student loans, you're going to work at an academic center or you're going to be working at, at a large hospital. You should definitely consider it because it's usually the most affordable way to pay down your loans over the long run. Yeah. So this is a main one that most people that most people know of. And some reservations that I've heard is, oh, well, what happens if you know a law changes and then this gets <laughs> taken away, then all my payments go for nothing. Is that like a possibility? Is that a, something that could actually happen? Or this is typically, this is set in stone here to stay? Yeah, good question. I think that people, new borrowers, I think that the public service loan forgiveness program for new borrowers is very likely it's going to change. But okay. for those that already have federal student loans that are already in residency or they're an attending physician and they're in the repayment phase, they're no longer in the borrowing phase, I see it extremely unlikely that they would retroactively change all of the rules to the program. But I do think it will change for new borrowers. I don't think it would be a great look. There's been almost, I think, I just checked the numbers on how many borrowers had had their loans forgiven, and they're they're a little bit lagging in the reporting. But as of November 2022, there's 365,000 borrowers that have had their loans forgiven through this program. I don't see them giving these people back their loan after they've had them forgiven. I think for those of you that are already done borrowing, I don't think that it's going to to change in a way that's going to hurt you, okay? Do you think it will change in the future for, for new borrowers, okay? But what if we think about things on the flip side? What if they change public service loan forgiveness from 10 years to seven years or 10 years to five years? And I'm not saying they're going to do that. I'm, I'm right. just trying to get you to wrap your head around that they could. They could make this, this program easier to do. And that is something that an existing borrower is already in repayment could potentially opt into. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. 
the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. And are there any other loan forgiveness programs out there that you for clients to, or is this basically the main one? Yeah, I would say for those of you that are, there's a couple of other loan forgiveness programs. So another big one, I don't see this quite as commonly with those of you that are going into a hiring specialty like orthopedics. There's another income-driven track that's called taxable that instead of this being over 10 years, it's over 20 to 25 years. And actually after you make those payments on an income-driven plan for 20 years, Whatever your loan balance is at that, that goes away, but it is taxed. So that's the kicker. And that's why it's named taxable forgiveness is that after 20 years, you get assessed a tax on whatever your loan balance is outstanding. Okay. And I usually only see people doing that if you're going into private practice and if your debt is probably about two and a half times or more than your income. So I almost never see anybody that's in orthopedics going down that route, unless you were going to be working part-time, you know, and you borrowed seven hundred dollars or $800,000 for school, okay? So that's one, but more common ones out. The military has a bunch of loan repayment assistance. You can do, do military while you're at school, right? You can go to the medical military school, or you can decide to go into one, you know, when you're in training or afterwards, they can help. But of course there, then you do have a number of years to provide service, right? In, in the right. Military. There is the veteran affairs has a very, very helpful loan repayment assistance program that I think they cover up to about forty or $50,000 per year. And then there's also more broadly, if you're interested in the Nash Health Services Corp or National Institutes of Health, or you want to get into you know research in one of those fields, they do also have some loan repayment assistance. But I would say the really big one that I see is is public service loan forgiveness. Typically. For those of you that are trying to find, because that's kind of the gold standard for loan forgiveness, because a lot of those other programs, they offer 20,000 or 30,000 or whatever you're discharged is taxable, but public service loan forgiveness has no cap or no bearing on how much you make on an annual basis or how large your debt is. Whatever that is, that can be discharged, you know, tax-free. Okay. And one of the things that you, again, you mentioned is taxes. And I guess, how do taxes impact your repayment plan? You know, if we're saying, is it the, do they, the amount that they want you to pay, would that be after taxes or I guess in general, how does taxes impact kind of these different plans? Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about these income driven options and I'll touch on that because tax, how do you file taxes? If you're single, it's super, super easy from a repayment perspective. If and when you get married and you've got a spouse that also makes money, right? Like a lot of doctors 
marry other high earning professionals or they marry a doctor, right? And then you both have income and you both have debt, right? Then it starts to get a little more complex. But let's first take this on some options that are not income driven. So, you know, with federal loans, they also have a 10 year fixed monthly payment that's called standard 10 year. And they also have an extended repayment program that's over 25 years. And those are based on your loan size and your interest rate. Think of it kind of like a mortgage at that point. You have a fixed monthly payment that they calculate on their end, and it's three grand a month, let's say, let's say, right? Or it's twenty, you know, it's two thousand dollars a month. And how you file your taxes on those programs doesn't really have any bearing because those repayment options are based on your debt and your interest rate. Where taxes come into play and how they impact payments is for those of you that are doing income-driven repayment. And the number that they utilize is your adjusted gross income. So let's say that you're a resident and you're making $70,000 and your residency offers what's called a 403B or a retirement account. And you put $5,000 into a pre-tax retirement account, okay? And I know that's a lot of money in, in trying to yeah. you do. So the number that your loan servicer would use is your gross income minus that pre-tax contribution of $5,000. So the amount of money, and that would come out to about $65,000. That is called your adjusted gross income. And that is the number that gets reported on your tax return when you're paying taxes for everybody as we're getting ready for tax season here in, in April as a you know as a recording in February. But uh, so that is the number that they use for taxes, and it's also the number they use when they're calculating your student loan payment. So it's your adjusted gross income. Okay, rather than what you after tax income, right, or or just your your flat gross. So this is a little trick here too. Is if you want to potentially bring down your monthly payment and make it more affordable, something that you can do is you can contribute to a pre tax retirement account, a four hundred three b, a four fifty seven, a four hundred one k. An IRA, those are, you know, health savings account. These are all some different avenues to do that. Okay. And then another thing I, I would say is if you're a single resident or you're the sole earner in your household, the way you do taxes is probably just going to be single or it's married filing joint. And that is not going to change much from a repayment perspective for you. Where this can change things massively is. Let's say that you're a resident and you're making $70,000 and you're married to a, a high earner, maybe they're a physician or maybe they're an attorney and they're making $400,000 a year. Okay. So it brings up your household income to like half a million dollars. Right. You're paying, well, let's say that your spouse, that your, your partner, they don't have any student loan debt. Okay. If you file your taxes jointly and you're making 70 and they're making 400,000, they are going to calculate your payments off of your household income. Oh no. Uh, close <laughs> to a half a million dollars. So, what does that mean in terms of payment? Instead of your payments being 300 bucks a month, those could be 400, you know, $4,000 a month, right? So, this can have a massive impact on what you're paying on a monthly basis, you know, 
you know, based on your taxes. But there's kind of a common loophole that, that a lot of borrowers will do where what you can do is you can file your taxes as a couple married filing separately. And what that does is it provides a shield or it effectively will exclude your spouse's income from consideration when they're calculating your pay. Going back to the example, the payments would only be based on you as a resident at $70,000 instead of $500,000 of income to try to help keep your payment down. Uh, okay. So some of the, just to recap, some of the things that we can do is one, if you're like a dual earning couple that it's making like 500000 but they're the, I guess, primary breadwinner. You can file married, but file separately. That way they're just looking at your income. And then also these different retirement contributions, like you, you could contribute towards IRA or, you know, one of these different contributions and that'll help decrease the adjusted, the gross income. And that's the number that they're going to take. So you're, you're gonna, they can be a little bit less. It won't be as expensive. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And those are two key ways that can help make your payments a lot more affordable, potentially, right? Is through married filing separately that can allow you to exclude your spouse's income from consideration. And you hit you hit the nail on the head on the second point there that you can lower your adjusted gross income and potentially lower your monthly payment by contributing to retirement. And one of the things that I want to test base that we briefly mentioned earlier was private refinancing. I want to see if you can kind of touch on what the difference is between private refinancing versus loan consolidation. And then two is when should one even consider kind of refinancing all their loans and kind of what it is? Yeah, private refinance, what this, and it's sometimes mixed in with private consolidation or consolidation. What it is, simplest form, is convert is effectively having a lender pay off one or more of your existing student loan. Okay. So, th and this can be you can have private loans and you can private refinance those. You can have federal loans and you can private refinance those. You can have federal and private loans and you can have those refinanced together. So where I see borrowers, docs doing this is if they're not going to do one of these federal loan forgiveness programs, like public service loan forgiveness, they've decided that, hey, it's it's not for me. I'm working in private practice after, or you know, I don't want to make payments for five years after training or four years after training, and I want to pay them off in a year, as an example. And I don't want to pay 7% on my federal student loans anymore. What else is out there? And is there a way for me to bring down my rate? Historically speaking, refinancing you know, has been pretty beneficial for positions for those of you out there that are not interested in a loan forgiveness program. Okay. So what it does is you can indicate how many loans you would like to get paid off or refinanced. And let's say I've got 10 federal loans. I can take those 10 federal loans and refinance all 10 of them into one new student loan. And if you're if you have federal and you want to refinance them, they're going to go from a federal loan into a private student loan. But as I had mentioned earlier, you can lump private and federal loans together. And it's not an all or nothing proposition. It's very a la carte. You can pick which loans you would want to be included there. But I usually see that 
if somebody is deciding on refinancing their student loans, they usually put them all in there. Okay. But a big factor when you're looking to do it is that you want to make sure that if you're going to get a new loan, that you're actually getting a better student, you know, a better rate. And this is why a lot of people will refinance their mortgage, right? You know, one of the things is they can pull out a lot of money, right? And potentially they're able to bring down their interest rate, right? For whatever reason, maybe their credit situation has gotten better or they got married or they had a big jump in income, right? Because if you're getting a mortgage when you're a resident versus an attending, you look a lot different on paper to them, right? And they, Very true. they see the, oh, wow, you only make 60 grand and you got 300,000 in loans. We're going to charge you a really high rate and you got to get this position mortgage, right? Or whatever. And, and you know, it looks a lot different uh, when you when you get done with training there. So that's one of the things when you're vetting, refinancing is if, if you want to do it, this is a situation for somebody that is not going to do loan forgiveness because- once you pull the trigger and you private refinance your student loan, you are no longer eligible for income-driven repayment for a lot for these federal loan forgiveness programs. Okay. And another big point there is there is what's called death and disability discharge. So heaven forbid, if you pass away or you become totally and permanently disabled before your federal student loans are paid off, they go away tax-free and they're discharged and they're not passed on to your significant other or buddy out. If you private refinance, sometimes what I see is that people will add a co-signer, they'll add their spouse, they'll add a parent or, or something like that to, to help boost their application. And, and when you do that, uh, that co-signer becomes jointly liable for the debt. Okay. And so if you're going to make that decision, just make sure that you kind of dotted your I's and crossed your T's because if you, for whatever reason, can't make a payment, the person who co-signed would be liable for that debt. Okay. They don't usually have death and disability discharge with, with private student loans. It's a lot more rare in case by case. And, you know, then getting into when should somebody actually do this? When should you refinance? I think the point in time when most people should refinance is when you've made the decision about what you're going to practice after training. If you've made the decision that I'm going to go into private practice, then I think that's a time when you can look look to refinance and get some quotes. Mm. Okay. Again, the main things for this is if you're refinancing, be able to pay these off a little bit quicker. And you can but the main thing also is with the interest rates, you can get a lower ideally than yeah. your federal still you're having a, a lower interest rate when you're private refinancing it. One thing I want to ask when you're refinancing it, when you buy and you're closing on a house, do you have to pay all these different closing costs? Are there a lot of other costs associated with refinancing it? Like I know the private bank or whatever, they'll pay the loans and then you owe them, but are there other like hidden costs behind there? To private refinance your student loans, it doesn't cost you a thing. Really? It It is, they don't charge you 2% or 3% of like your loan balance or whatever it is, right? There is no cost to private student loans or to private refinance your student loans, but- there is a slight credit hit and talking 15 to 20 points maybe. So it's something that you would make up very, very quickly. And I guess I would say is the cost is you have less flexibility at that point in time usually because a lot of people will go from a federal loan 
into a private loan when they're refinancing. So you just want to be crystal clear that is the path that you want it. Mm, okay. No, that's perfect sense. I'm glad you you broke that down, differences and exactly what and when to private refinance. You know, I'm, I may do that. I'm not sure yet. We'll see in the future. One of the things I wanted to ask, the student loan pause that we're in over the past couple of years where there being different like legislation, you know, one because of the pandemic and things of that sort. Have you seen, in your experience, have you seen that this has been changing or I guess maybe what are your thoughts on how we can kind of navigate through this? Yeah, I think this brings me to another point earlier is that you're like, well, Andrew, I got done with medical school. I don't know what year you graduated, whether it was 2020 or it would maybe it was during the pandemic. No, uh, I graduated in 18. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you had made, maybe you made a little bit of payment or no payment, but then in 2020 in March, they just paused everything. Right. Okay? And so that means that for most of you out there that are in repayment, you haven't paid anything for close to three years. And all of these months, those can count towards one of the forgiveness track, you know, as long as you're working and you're making payments. And if you're working at a a nonprofit 501c3 full time, you're getting credit for the PSLF program. So, you know, you would probably be getting credit for this program if you were interested. But well, looking at this, so it, it is, there's been no federal payments and there's been no interest that's been accruing or growing on your loans for the better part of three years. And that's been very, very beneficial for many of you out there. So kind of where we see things going with, and this has had a huge on those of you that were looking to refinance or on the feds to do it because you could refinance and you could get your student loan interest rate to let's say 4%, but right now you're paying zero. So I've seen that a lot of people that are looking to refinance, they're going to wait until this pause really goes away because, you know, as as we've seen, they've continued to extend this. You know, President Trump first issued the executive order that they wanted to pause payments, but then President Biden has continued it. I think he's paused them about seven more times since that point in time where it was kind of anybody's guess when they were going to start that. But currently, payments are set to resume September of 2023, unless there's this student loan forgiveness that they've been talking about that is ten dollars to $20,000 that right now is, is currently in the hands of the Supreme Court, and they're going to rule on that most likely in June. So- yeah. Effectively, if that was to come to fruition and they they were to issue this forgiveness to, you know, the tens of millions of borrowers that have applied and qualified, then that would kick payments back in. They said that they would give borrowers two months from when the forgiveness was issued. And so that's where I'm kind of seeing the ballpark time of when payments are going to start is most likely end of summer, early fall. So that means that, you know, that that's kind of the first time that anybody would make payment. You know, and another point I would say there with this pause is again, even though nobody's been required to make a federal payment, you've probably been getting credit for a loan forgiveness program. You know, I think it's made a lot of people wonder if they should keep their loans federal for longer. And I've seen a lot of people that didn't ever see themselves pursuing a forgiveness track that now see that it can be quite beneficial because, I mean, imagine that you graduated 
residency or maybe even fellowship as an orthopedic surgeon. Maybe you graduated in 2019. And those first three years of attending income, you didn't have to make any payments mm-hmm. for, for the, the public service loan forgiveness program. Now you're only two years out potentially, and you'd only have to make like two years of payments on attending income. That could be a whole lot cheaper of an option to pay down your loan. So those are the type of situations that have popped up here. Mm, that's uh, good to know. And I, I think most borrowers, we have all been very happy that, that there has not been any payments that we've had to make. So I know many people are hoping that it gets extended yet again, but I don't know. Uh, we'll see what the future holds. This has been super informative. I've learned a lot already. Wish I had this conversation or podcast five years ago when I first started <laughs> residency. A little late now, but what services do you offer for those that are listening that may kind of want to figure out and touch based on their own student loans and and what they should do. Yeah. So what I and my team of student loan professionals do, if you are trying to figure out all of your options, you're trying to pick a repayment program, you're trying to decide, should I do loan forgiveness? Should I refinance my student loans? Or I'm married and I've got a spouse that makes money. Should I file taxes separately to make my payments lower, or we work with people that are, you know, we work with lots and lots of physicians, just granted that I'm affiliated with the white coat investor. If you are, you have no idea where to start and you're just trying to get your arms around, how am I going to make these payments? We work with people there. And sometimes we also have, they already have a plan. And they just want to make sure it is well oiled. We can take you kind of wherever you are and where the inflection point that we see is most helpful. If you just matched or you're in training still, that's probably the perfect time to kind of get a grip on this because when you're in training, that's usually the hardest, the most complex time for, for student loan payments. But we also work with attending physicians too. So so that's a little bit, and we do a one-on-one student loan consultation where we create a plan for you. We meet with you, you, we answer your questions, and then we provide you with overall recommendations on how to tackle your loans. And then you get a year of of email with us afterward. So that's what we do. and, And we just try to help you save the most amount of money on your student loans and get them out of your life and get you peace of mind. And where can people reach you at? Yeah, it's studentloanadvice.com. Right there on our website, you can you can find us, you can read about us, and and you can also schedule an appointment if you've made the determination that you do want to sit down with somebody. That's our, our one-on-one service. Awesome. Well, Andrew, this has been, again, very informative. I learned a lot from speaking to you. So happy that you came on the podcast. We got to talk a little bit about student loan forgiveness, and uh, we touched on a good variety of topics. So Again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Wendell. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope that you all enjoyed it. Again, if you want to learn some more about Andrew Paulson, click the link in the description, especially if you want a consultation or anything from them. uh, Click the link and go check them out. And uh, without further ado, we will see you all next time.